On this episode of Newt's World, I want to talk about Putin's maneuvers in Ukraine and in Europe, and also put in context what's happening when a democracy is reasonable and a dictatorship is unreasonable. In that sense, I think what we're watching happen with Ukraine is remarkably like what happened between Adolf Hitler and Czechoslovakia in 1938. So I both want to put in context Putin's thinking about the situation in Ukraine and what he's trying to accomplish and the frame of reference for how dictatorships outmaneuver democracies, although in the long run it's very dangerous because the democracies, once they feel that they have no choice, can be remarkably powerful in response. The dance has been amazing to watch. The Biden administration said, well, we would certainly be very upset if he invaded Ukraine. But on the other hand, if he just did a few small things, that would be different. They were then promptly said they didn't really mean it, even though it was President Biden who had said it in a press conference. But right now they're behaving as though they did mean it. And the reason is that Putin has very carefully modulated what he's doing. There were two provinces in eastern Ukraine which have been engaged in a running war now for over a decade. Both of them are right on the Russian border. Both of them were militarily supported by the Russians. Both of them have had constant skirmishing for over a decade. In fact, I was told at one point that the Russian artillery school graduation exercise is to go and fire artillery rounds into Ukraine and that they do this routinely. So in a sense, Putin picked the least provocative, aggressive action he could take. He simply recognized these two independent regions and then turned around and, by the way, occupied the regions he had recognized. Meanwhile, the Biden administration, which I think may avoid ever going to war because it'll surrender first and simply avoid ever confronting anything, the Biden administration, which had totally mishandled the Taliban, is now mishandling a dictatorship led by a KGB officer who had been trained to take on the West. And I think the starting point for understanding Putin is his own personal background. This is a man who was in the KGB. He was a colonel. He was serving in East Germany. He saw the United States as the main enemy. He has said publicly that he felt that the greatest disaster of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, somebody who tells you all that, if you study the KGB at all, you realize these are very, very tough people. They're very professional people. He saw NATO as the secondary enemy and the United States as the primary enemy. He's been very open about that for his entire career. And the result has been that we've been up against a very tough guy. Condi Rice, the former Secretary of State, former National Security Advisor, in a panel in 2014, talked about Putin. She said the following. We have a great power in Europe behaving badly. Uh, Vladimir Putin never accepted the outcome of the end of the Cold War. He has said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. That's something when you consider that the Russians lost uh, 
probably as many as 30 million people uh, in World War II. It's quite a statement to say that was the greatest tragedy. I remember sitting with him uh, at NATO in 2008 in his last uh, talk to the NATO-Russia Council, and he said something that everybody sort of said, did we hear that right? He said, Ukraine is a made-up state, he said. And I can remember going to see Vladimir Putin and in one of my last encounters with him, having him say, you know us, Kandi. You know that Russia has only been great when it was ruled by strong men, like Alexander the Great, like Peter, uh, Alexander II, like Peter the Great. And I remember thinking, and then is Vladimir the Great supposed to be in that line? But I was too polite to ask. I was Secretary of State. And I'm not sure he's delusional. I am sure he's not wholly rational. Because uh, <laughs> leaders of great countries don't go around fighting tigers bare-chested. He's a megalomaniac. And, uh, and you have to deal with the 5% chance that he might in fact be delusional. And he is making up his own version of history. And I don't see anybody around him who's telling him, uh, you know, this is not, he's talking about Russia becoming self-sufficient and autarkic again. How long has it been since we've heard those words, Joseph Stalin? This is eight years ago, 2014. But the fact is nothing has changed much. Putin believes deeply that the Soviet Union can be recreated. He believes deeply that NATO can be driven out of Europe. He certainly believes it can be driven out of Eastern Europe. He regards NATO being in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Romania and Bulgaria as aggressive actions against Russia. And so he has a very strong desire to gradually encroach upon them, push them back, create bigger space for Russia. Remember, this is a country that has 5,000 nuclear weapons. The Chinese have some nuclear weapons. The Pakistanis, the Indians, the British, the French have some. The North Koreans and the Iranians are getting them. But nobody has 5,000 except the United States and Russia. It's very dangerous. He also has a still first-rate military equipment operation that produces very good aircraft, very good hypersonic missiles, a very serious space program. And remember, with the current high price of oil, partly a function of President Biden's commitment to policies which cripple the American oil and gas industry, Putin's making about a billion dollars a day. Russia, at least, is making a billion dollars a day, much of which goes to the Russian government and enables Putin to sustain all of his adventures and rebuild his military and create genuine threats around the world. So our energy policy, while we talk about sanctioning Russia, the fact is our energy policy has made Putin much richer while also making the American people much poorer. It's truly a stupid policy and reminds me of Jimmy Carter's efforts in 1980 after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Carter decided that he would punish the Soviets by cutting off wheat exports. And what he did, of course, is he impoverished American wheat farmers while the Soviets simply went elsewhere in the world to buy wheat. And ultimately, Ronald Reagan repealed that because it was self-defeating. It was making us poorer and not hurting them at all. So I think that what you have here is Putin is looking at his daily bank account and thinking, as long as the Americans are stupid, I'm going to make a lot of money. And while I'm making a lot of money, I can afford to be an adventurer. Now, what we have to remember is that very clever dictators, when dealing with weak democracies, 
know that if you sort of nibble away, you, you don't do anything too rapidly, you don't do anything too big, but if you nibble at the right pace, the democracy can never quite mobilize. It can never quite take you seriously. This was the great lesson of the 1930s, which is why I think there are remarkable parallels between Chamberlain's weaknesses and Biden's weaknesses. Chamberlain authentically and legitimately did not want to go back and fight another world war. He knew how extraordinary the casualties had been for Great Britain. He knew how many young men had died and how many young men had been crippled. And he just was willing to do almost anything to avoid it. And so he tried to find a way to make Hitler happy without getting involved in a war. And the term appeasement, which has now been considered a term of ridicule, was in fact a legitimate rational strategy, as A.J.P. Taylor wrote in a famous book on the process of negotiating in the 1930s. And Chamberlain thought, if only I can find what he wants, give it to him without war, get him to be satisfied, we'll save millions and millions of lives. Now, of course, that's not how it happened. And much like Putin, Hitler was very clever in figuring out the breaking point. First of all, he took the Rhineland, which after all had been German, was demilitarized by the Versailles Treaty, but he occupied it. Well, occupying it was after all German territory, and both the French and the British found a reason not to do anything. Then the Austrians decide they want to join Germany. After all, they speak German. They're German in background. And again, it was the middle of Europe and wasn't a direct immediate threat. So why not relax and accept it? And then he decided that he wanted to somehow occupy the German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia. And at that point, he had a different problem because the Czechs had a good army. The part he wanted was the essence of their military defense line. They weren't going to give it up. And they were prepared to fight. And by the way, they had treaties with both Great Britain and with France. And so if the British and the French honored their treaty, they would have to help the Czechs. And it was real doubt that the German army in 1938 could have fought a two-front war without breaking down and collapsing. So Chamberlain is trying to find a way to accommodate Hitler without war. Hitler, who can intuitively smell the weakness in his opponents, decides that he will invite Chamberlain and Deladier, who's the French leader, to come to Munich for a conference. And that's received with great relief. Ah, we're going to avoid war. We're going to save millions of lives. Let's go and see what Herr Hitler wants. Now, much like what's going on right now, they don't invite the Czechs because, in fact, they're going to sell them out. And they don't want them in the room complaining. And one of the smarter things I've seen in the last few days was Senator Sass of Nebraska saying any meeting between Biden and Putin should include the president of Ukraine. After all, it's his country that we're negotiating about, and he should be in the room. Well, it was clear in 1938, first of all, if the Czechs were going to be in the room, Hitler wouldn't come. I suspect if the president of Ukraine is going to be in the room, Putin won't come. And so the question becomes, if the only way they'll come is to make sure that the victim is not allowed to be in the room, is that not by itself a signal that they're not dealing in good faith? But in 1938, in a moment of desperation, trying to avoid war, you have Chamberlain flying into Munich. They have a meeting. They talk it through. And they decide 
that they will take the Sudeten part of Czechoslovakia, which is the German-speaking part, and they will give it to Germany in return for Hitler's promise that this is the last territorial demand that I have. Chamberlain comes home, declaring that we have peace in our time, and people are wildly enthusiastic. People don't want to go to war over Czechoslovakia. It's a distant country. They don't know anything about it. It was artificially created by the Treaty of Versailles and the Versailles Conference after World War I. The people in Sudetenland, after all, were mostly Germans. So why would you stop ethnic Germans from going back to Germany? There were all sorts of good arguments. The one person who thoroughly understood it was Winston Churchill. And Churchill had the huge advantage that he had actually read Mein Kampf, Hitler's book, which he had written when he was in prison in 1924, and in which he makes very clear what he wants to do. He wants to conquer all of Europe, wipe out the Jews, and establish a German control of all of continental Europe. Well, Churchill read it and said, ah, I get it. This guy's crazy. The sooner we stop him, the better off we are. When you have the famous scene of Chamberlain returning, getting off the airplane, declaring peace in our time, Churchill says the following, quote, you were given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor, and you will have war. Well, a few months later, Germany absorbed the rest of the Czech Republic. And that was the final straw. That's the point where the democracies decided, you know, we're going to have to stop him. He'll never stop on his own. And therefore, we're going to have to do whatever it takes. And so they issued a commitment to Poland. Now, Stalin, who was also a dictator, thought, you know, what a great opportunity. I don't trust the Allies. The Allies don't like me. I'm a communist. They hate communism. So what if I cut a deal with Hitler? Hitler doesn't care. He's a dictator. I'm a dictator. So they created a non-aggression pact. In essence, they said, if Germany invades Poland, Russia gets Eastern Poland. Stalin thought, this is a good deal for me. That gives me more space to defend myself if Germany ever decides to attack me. Hitler thought, this is great. I'm not going to be faced with a war on the Eastern Front. And so they decided to go to war in August and September of 1939. And at that point, people in Great Britain are fed up. And Chamberlain has no choice because his own party has finally said, look, you can't keep appeasing these guys. You're going to have to stand up and stop them. And so World War II begins. But it begins without the Czech Republic. It begins without the strength they could have had. And it begins at a time when the primary fighting is going to be in the East, where the British and the French can't actually project any power. And as a result, Poland's going to collapse totally. And let's look at how did the most sophisticated American diplomat of that generation, the man who ultimately helped design the Cold War strategy after World War II, George Kennan. Well, this is what George Kennan said in a personal letter. Is he worried? Is he shocked? Is he angry? Not at all. Just listen to Kennan, because he gives you a flavor of how the Western elites felt about selling out the Czechs. Quote, in the long run, to be sure, the provinces will probably feel the iron heel in many ways. The Jews in particular will doubtless meet essentially the same fate as those in the Reich proper, though attended perhaps with less brutality. But for the moment, the Germans have been, in my view, 
surprisingly mild and conciliatory. In particular, those who've come down from Berlin have not seemed to identify themselves with the Sudeten Germans or with the Czech fascists. And I am encouraged to hope that their attitudes toward the mass of the Czechs may turn out to be a more reasonable one than many have anticipated. It's a letter from George Kennan personally, March 30th, 1939. Now, when you read that and you know what was actually happening, you have to think this was insanity. But diplomats are good at insanity. Diplomats are good at saying to themselves, well, maybe things will be okay. I've watched with total dismay as the Biden administration has sent every possible signal of weakness, withdrawing American diplomats from Kiev, explaining publicly that the Ukrainians will be defeated, having the chairman of the Joint Chiefs say that Russia can be in Kiev in three days, basically creating an economic blockade of Ukraine by creating such a lack of confidence that why would any rational business invest in Ukraine when the U.S. government thinks it's going to collapse? Putin is watching all of this. He's very smart. He's thought about this a great deal. He's uninhibited in his understanding of power. What you have is a, a hack politician from Delaware in totally over his head, trying to cope with a totally ruthless political boss trained by the KGB. And it's a total mismatch. I'm not even sure that the Biden team can play tic-tac-toe, but they sure can't play chess, and they certainly can't play four-dimensional chess. And what you have now with Putin is a guy who's thought about this for his entire career, who is methodically expanding the influence of Russian state to recreate the Soviet Union, who tells you over and over that's what he's doing. Now, just as Churchill had a better understanding of Hitler because he'd actually read Mein Kampf, I want to suggest that if you actually pay attention to the February 21st speech by the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, you'll have a better sense of what he's up to. So I'm going to share with you what I think are some of the key parts and listen to how he describes Ukraine and then ask yourself if he believes this, and I think he does, what does that tell you in advance he's likely to do? This is Putin. Quote, I would like to emphasize again that Ukraine is not just a neighboring country for us. It is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and spiritual space. These are our comrades, those dearest to us, not only colleagues, friends, and people who once served together, but also relatives, people bound by blood, by family ties. Since time immemorial, the people living in the southwest of what has historically been Russian land have called themselves Russians and Orthodox Christians. This was the case before the 17th century, when a portion of this territory rejoined the Russian state and after. It seems to us that, generally speaking, we all know these facts, that this is common knowledge. Now, I can tell you that when Callista and I were in Kiev, and we went and visited the great monasteries, and we looked at the history of the region, it's very clear that the center of Russian civilization prior to 1200 was in Ukraine, not in Moscow. It's only when the Mongol horde arrives, destroys Russian civilization in Kiev, while not 
doing much damage to Moscow, which is at that time a relatively small town hidden away in the woods in an area that the Mongols don't like to fight in, that you begin to see a shift from the south to the north. But there's no question that the original origins of Russian civilization are much more in Ukraine than they are in Moscow. How did this modern Ukraine occur? This is, again, Putin speaking to the Russian people. Quote, modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia, or to be more precise, by Bolshevik communist Russia, close quote. He goes on to say, quote, in 1954, Khrushchev took Crimea away from Russia for some reason and also gave it to the Ukraine. By the way, I am told this was done because Khrushchev's wife was Ukrainian. Crimea is actually about 90% Russian, and Russian speakers dominate the area. And it was the one area where you could sense that Russian occupation was not automatically seen with hostility. But the fact is, in what is really a remarkably long speech to the country, Putin is trying to set a framework that Ukraine is illegitimate. He goes on to call it, quote, Vladimir Lenin's Ukraine. And he says, including, I'm again quoting from Putin, including Lenin's harsh instructions regarding Donbass, which was actually shoved into Ukraine. In other words, from his perspective, Donbass has always been Russian, except for Lenin having made a decision. He goes, quote, we are ready to show what real decommunizations would mean for Ukraine. Now, I don't particularly think I want Putin and the KGB showing me what real decommunization is like, and I have a hunch it will not be very pleasant for the people of Ukraine. Just a very long speech. It goes on for page after page, explaining how Ukraine ended up being where it is. And he says, quote, it should be noted that Ukraine actually never had stable traditions of real statehood. And therefore, in 1991, it opted for mindlessly emulating foreign models, which have no relation to history or Ukrainian realities. Political government institutions were readjusted many times to the rapidly glowing clans and their self-serving interest, which had nothing to do with the interests of the Ukrainian people. Essentially, the so-called pro-Western civilizational choice made by the oligarchic Ukrainian authorities was not and is not aimed at creating better conditions in the interest of people's well-being, but at keeping the billions of dollars that the oligarchs have stolen from the Ukrainians and are holding in their accounts in Western banks. Now, think about this. He's talking about oligarchs, of which the most famous are Russian, He's talking about stealing from the people, of which Russia is an absolute model. But he's now projecting it onto Ukraine. And furthermore, how are these oligarchs surviving? Quote, they are reverently accommodating the geopolitical rivals of Russia. So what Putin is saying to the Russian people is, here is the country which should be part of Russia. It has been stolen by billionaires who are puppets of the Western governments. And it is now a base of anti-Russian behavior that we should all be offended by. This is his explanation of the nature of political power in Ukraine. Quote, the nationalists who have seized power have unleashed a persecution, a real terror campaign against those who oppose their anti-constitutional actions. Politicians, journalists, and public activists were harassed and publicly humiliated. Now, let me point out for a second. This is the Putin who has had his opponents poisoned. 
This is the Putin who's had reporters killed. This is the Putin who actually had an anti-Putin Russian tracked down in London and killed with radioactive material. But notice how he sets it up so that the real bad people are Ukrainians. They're not Russians. And he's projecting onto them the stuff he does. He goes on to say, a wave of violence swept Ukrainian cities, including a series of high-profile and unpunished murders. One shudders at the memories of the terrible tragedy in Odessa, where peaceful protesters were brutally murdered, burned alive in the House of Trade Unions. Now, everybody who watches the Putin dictatorship knows that this is a dictatorship which is willing to kill people routinely. He goes on to say, however, again, projecting all this onto Ukraine, the criminals who committed that atrocity have never been punished, and no one is even looking for them. But we know their names, and we will do everything to punish them, find them, and bring them to justice. Now, what is he telling you? Exactly what the Biden administration has begun saying publicly. They have lists. If they take over the country, they're going to track down the people that they don't want, and they're going to kill them. And they don't make any pretense about anything else. So he describes the Ukrainian economy in tatters. It's an outright pillage of the country's citizens, while Ukraine itself was placed under external control, directed not only from the Western capitals, but also on the ground, as the saying goes, through an entire network of foreign advisors, NGOs, and other institutions present in Ukraine. They have a direct bearing on all the key appointments and dismissals, and on all branches of power at all levels, from the central government down to municipalities. So what he's describing is a Ukraine totally occupied by the United States and NATO through various puppets. He goes on to say, now again, remember, this is Vladimir Putin, dictator of Russia, cheerful killer of opponents, a man who was trained by the secret police. But this is his description of Ukraine. Quote, there is no independent judiciary in Ukraine. The Kiev authorities at the West demand delegated the priority right to select members of the Supreme Judicial Bodies, the Council of Justice, and the High Qualifications Commission of Judges to international organizations. In addition, the United States directly controls the National Agency on Corruption Prevention, the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office, and the High Anti-Corruption Court. All this is done under the noble pretext of invigorating efforts against corruption. All right, but where are the results? Corruption is flourishing like never before. Now, to have somebody like Putin, who's a great actor, deliver that line with a straight face is really very impressive. He goes on to say, this is even worse. The policy to root out the Russian language and culture and promote assimilation carries on. Finally, he explains Crimea. Quote, a few words about Crimea. The people of the peninsula freely made their choice to be with Russia. The Kiev authorities cannot challenge the clearly stated choice of the people, which is why they have opted for aggressive action, for activating extremist cells, including radical Islamist organizations, for sending subversives to stage terrorist attacks at critical infrastructure facilities and for kidnapping Russian citizens. We have factual proof that such aggressive actions are being taken with support from Western security services. He goes on to say, this is nothing other than preparation for hostilities against our country, Russia. 
In other words, this entire very long speech to the Russian people basically makes the case, one, that Ukraine is really Russia, two, that the Westerners have taken over Ukraine against the people of Ukraine and are exploiting it economically and controlling it politically, and three, that it is a base for an attack against Russia. And therefore, if Russia has to, in fact, attack Ukraine, it'll be defensive. They will only be doing it because they were forced to. Now, at that point, he has recognized the two breakaway regions. Since they're now broken away, they have, in fact, invited the Russian army in. So how can anybody complain? They've been invited in. They haven't gone a step further. Meanwhile, the Germans are pretending to be offended. They have temporarily suspended the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They have not permanently suspended it. The Biden administration, in a moment of utter, total ineffectiveness, has announced that there will be sanctions against the two breakaway regions, not against Putin. I mean, if you want to have real sanctions, you would seize all Russian property. Every oligarch would lose control of their multi-million dollar apartment in Manhattan. They would lose control of their billions of dollars in investments and in savings accounts. They would be blocked from coming to the United States. I mean, there are lots of things you could do to cause pain. Instead, in a moment of continued total ineffectiveness, the Biden administration, at least at the moment, has done virtually nothing. And the result will be exactly what it was in Crimea. Remember that the Obama foreign policy team is the Biden foreign policy team. The total incompetence of the Obama people in Syria and in Crimea is now being repeated. And it is, to me, astonishing. This is a very, very dangerous situation. I think that we should not kid ourselves. The current Biden administration inability to deal with Putin is astonishing. Biden has no clue what to do. His staff is worse than he is. And they're up against somebody who is smart, ruthless, cautious. Notice what he's doing, step by step, inch by inch. He's not lunging into some great risk. He's just pushing a little and then stopping and pushing a little and then stopping. He's been doing this for at least 20 years. And his goal is to gradually continue to rebuild the Soviet Union. I remember in 1993, I was on a congressional delegation to Moscow. And I was meeting with the then vice president of Russia under Boris Yeltsin. This was an Air Force three-star general. And he was in this huge room, I think it was 40 or 50 feet long. One entire wall was a map of the Soviet Union. And being semi-clever, I said to him, that's a map of the Soviet Union. And he looked at me for a second, he said, yes, it will be like that again. At the time, I thought it was an interesting comment about his attitude. I believe that is Putin's attitude. I believe that he intends to push and push and push. His goal is first to break up NATO, second to drive the United States out of Europe, and third to establish absolute Russian hegemony over Europe, while his good friends in Beijing are establishing hegemony over Taiwan. And I think that to the degree that we are weak in Ukraine, we are sowing the seeds of a disaster in Taiwan. And I believe this is an enormously dangerous period. And I want to close where I started. Russia has 5,000 nuclear weapons. It has capable of levels of violence we can't even begin to imagine. 
trying to manage this in an intelligent way is very difficult. I think that under somebody like Ronald Reagan, you would have seen a significant buildup. You would have seen a dramatic increase in production of oil and gas. You would have seen an effort to build as many liquefied natural gas ports as possible and a deliberate effort to wean Western Europe off of Russian natural gas and a deliberate effort. I know this from having been there in the early 80s. We drove down the price of gasoline until we bankrupted the Russian economy. And that was a major factor in Gorbachev ultimately facing the collapse of the Soviet Union. Reagan had real strategies. He was very realistic. He wanted to avoid war, but he also wanted to avoid defeat. And he understood that only with strength and a sound, consistent strategy could you do that. This administration has no strength, has no strategy, deludes itself about who it's dealing with. And I think this is a very, very dangerous period. And that's why I wanted to take the time to share Putin's speech so you understand this is who we're dealing with. He's a very tough, very smart, professional KGB officer who has spent every day from 1991 to today trying to figure out how to rebuild the Soviet Union and who is prepared to run considerable risks to achieve that. We'll see how it works, but I think that it's a very dangerous time to have a very weak, deluded president who just doesn't understand what's going on. Thank you very much for letting me share these ideas with you. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about the Russian invasion of Ukraine on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.